Right, so this is, this is the third Sunday in our series of four Sundays on the book of Revelation. Who has had a, a revelation about the book of Revelation so far? Are we, are we enjoying our journey here? In a moment, we, I'm going to play you part three of our, of our, of our little animation of, of um, how uh, the book of Revelation unfolds. But before we do that, I thought I'd actually give you a bit of knowledge about you know, the whys and wherefores of apocalyptic literature. So, uh, and it'll appear on the screen before you, in, behind me so that you can read it as well. But uh, this, this is an actually important to recognise about apocalyptic um, writings. And so the ancient origins of apocalyptic writing lie with the Old Testament prophets, which means that whatever else, these writers, including John, who wrote Revelation, were concerned with judgment and salvation. But the prophets, in contrast to the apocalyptists, I think that's the right word, were not primarily writers. Rather, prophets were first the spokesmen for Yahweh, who only later set their spoken words to writing. The apocalypses, on the other hand, are carefully structured and worked out literary works from the start. Part of the reason for this is that apocalyptic was born during the time of powerful world empires, which was often a time of persecution for the Jewish community. These writers, therefore, were engaged in a kind of subversive literature, prophesying cataclysmic judgments on their persecutors, God's own enemies, who at the time of their writing appeared so powerful that there was no hope for their collapse except by divine intervention. So these writers no longer looked to God, for God to bring about their redemption within history. Rather, they pictured God as bringing a cataclysmic end to history, which also ushered in a redemptive conclusion for God's people. And with that in mind, let's continue our journey through the book of Revelation. The Revelation of Jesus given to John the prophet. In the first video, we explored how John composed this apocalyptic prophecy as a circular letter to seven churches in Asia Minor to challenge and comfort these Christians who were suffering from apathy and persecution under the Roman Empire. We also encountered John's main symbol for Jesus, the slain lamb, who conquered his enemies by dying for them. He is the one who opens up the scroll containing God's purposes to bring his kingdom on earth as in heaven. The scroll's opening brought warning judgments like the plagues of Egypt, and like Pharaoh, the nations do not repent. And then John introduced the multi-ethnic army of the Lamb, and the opened scroll revealed their strange mission. It's to follow the Lamb by bearing witness to God's justice and mercy before the beastly nations, even if it kills them. And they will conquer the beast by laying down their lives just like the Lamb, and this will move the nations to repentance. In the remainder of the book, John will fill out his portrayal of this beast and his war on God's people and how the whole story ends. After the seven trumpets, John stops the drumbeat of sevens with a series of visions that he calls signs. The word literally means symbols, and these chapters are full of them. These visions explore the message of the open scroll in greater depth. The first one reveals the cosmic spiritual battle that lay behind the suffering of the seven churches under Roman persecution. It's a manifestation of that ancient conflict that began in Genesis chapter 3. The serpent, who represents the source of all evil, is depicted here as a dragon. It attacks a woman and her seed. They represent the Messiah and his people. Then the Messiah defeats the dragon through his death and resurrection, and it's cast to earth. There, the dragon inspires hatred and persecution of the Messiah's people. 
but they will conquer the dragon by resisting his influence, even if it kills them. John's trying to show the churches that neither Rome nor any other nation or human is the real enemy. There are dark spiritual powers at work, and Jesus' followers will announce Jesus' victory by remaining faithful and loving their enemies just like the slain lamb. John's next vision retells the story of the same conflict, but this time in the earthly symbolism of Daniel's animal visions. John sees two beasts empowered by the dragon. One of them represents national military power that conquers through violence. The other beast symbolizes the economic propaganda machine that exalts this power as divine. And these beasts demand full allegiance from the nations, and that's symbolized by taking the mark of the beast and his number, 666, on the forehead or hand. Now, this is an infamous image, and you won't discover its meaning by reading news headlines. John's making a clear Hebrew Old Testament reference here. First of all, this mark is the anti-Shema. The writing on the forehead and hand, it's a clear reference to the Shema, an ancient Jewish prayer of allegiance to God that's found in the book of Deuteronomy. This prayer also was written on the forehead and hand as a symbol of devoting all your thoughts and actions to the one true God. But now the rebellious nations demand their own allegiance and they force everyone to decide who they will follow. Then there's the number of the beast, which has fascinated readers for thousands of years. But this was not a mystery to John. He spoke Hebrew and Greek, and Hebrew letters were also numbers. If you spell the Greek words Nero Caesar and the word beast in Hebrew, each one amounts to 666. Now, John isn't saying that Nero was the only fulfillment of this vision. Nero's just a recent example of the ancient pattern set out by Daniel that the nations become beasts when they exalt their own power and economic security as a false god and then demand total allegiance. So Babylon was the beast in Daniel's day, but that was followed by Persia, followed by Greece, and now Rome in John's day. And so it goes for any later nation that acts in the same way. Standing opposed to the beastly nations and the dragon is another king. It's the slain lamb. He's with his army who have given their lives to follow him. And from the new Jerusalem, their song of victory goes out to the nations in what John calls the eternal gospel. And they call everyone to repent and to worship God and to come out of Babylon that will fall. Its days are numbered. Then John sees a vision of final judgment. It's symbolized by two harvests. One is a good harvest of grain as King Jesus comes to gather up his faithful people to himself. The other is a harvest of wine grapes. It represents humanity's intoxication with evil. They're taken to the wine press and trampled. Now, throughout all these sign visions, John is placing a stark choice before the seven churches. Will they resist the lure of Babylon and follow the lamb? Or will they follow the beast and suffer its defeat. Now that the choice is clear, John replays a final cycle of seven divine judgments, symbolized as pouring out seven bowls. Now we know from the Lamb's scroll and from the sign visions that many among the nations do repent. But as the Exodus plagues are repeated and poured out through the bowls, there are many people who do not repent. They resist and curse God, just like Pharaoh. And so it all leads up to the sixth bowl, as the dragon and the beasts, they gather the nations together to make war against God's people in a place called Armageddon. This refers to a plain in northern Israel where many battles were fought by Israel against invading nations. And some people think that this sixth bowl refers to an actual future battle. Other people think that it's a metaphor for God's final justice on evil. Either way, John's clearly taken images from the book of Ezekiel about God's battle with 
Gog. Gog was Ezekiel's symbol of the rebellious nations gathered before God to face his justice. And that's what comes in the seventh bowl. It's the fourth and final depiction of the day of the Lord when evil is defeated among the nations once and for all. Oh. You will want to see how it ends, don't you? You're going to have to wait for next week to actually see that. But you can see that the book is building to a crescendo. Things are happening, there are symbolic uh, changes happening on the earth, and so it's starting to get very exciting. So who remembers what last week's take-home message was? Because I do, because I've got it written here. It was the fact that the church is still God's plan A, and he doesn't have a plan B. We're to continue to love our enemies, we continue to heal the sick, perform miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're to bear witness to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and we'd be kings and priests to the world. And so John realises that the believers he's writing to and the church today actually need a powerful motivation to continue to be faithful under the persecution that they're facing or are about to face. So this morning I want to examine that motivation and how we build our faith upon that motivation. And so this morning's title is The Lion and the Lamb because John uses these images to actually show the motivation that we, we have, the, the reason that we have for keeping our faith going. And so to encourage and inspire us, he builds a picture of the triumphant and victorious Jesus, who is our Lord and Saviour, using Old Testament imagery, but reinforcing that with New Testament revelation and truth. He does this by introducing Jesus as the power of heaven come to free those who love him and to judge those who despise him. And he has the full authority of the Father to do this. And he does this in the very beginning. If we, if we read Revelation chapter 1, starting from verse 4, this is the very introduction uh, to the book from John. And it says, This letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from the one who is, and always was, and who is to come, from the sevenfold spirit before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness to these things, the first to rise from the dead and the ruler of all the kings of the world. All glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by shedding his blood for us. He has made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father. All glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven, and everyone will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is who always was and who is still to come, the Almighty One. It's a, a sentence, or a, a paragraph full of all sorts of imagery. And we actually need to break it down because it's actually an important way of introducing a letter. And John is actually very, 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 very deliberate in his delivery here. So I'm going to break, break this down for you, and you'll be able to see what I'm talking about on the screen behind me. If we start with the first, first sentence, it says, the letter is from John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you. And that's a fairly standard greeting. But he actually says, from the one who is, who always was, and is still to come, which is our Father in heaven. This is mentioned in this phrase three times in the book of Revelation. It says, from the sevenfold spirit before his throne, which is a, a clear reference to the Holy Spirit. And again, in the book of Revelations, the Holy Spirit is referenced three times in this way. And then the last one, he says, and from Jesus Christ, who is, of course, 
Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that this is the only greeting in the whole of the New Testament that actually references the Trinity. The only greeting that talks about the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And the interesting thing is that even though it's the only one, it's also the only one that does things the wrong way around. Because normally we say the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. But here John has clearly said the Father, the, Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the only one he mentions by name. The rest, you know, it's the, the one who was, and always, will be, and is to come. We know that's the fa our Father in heaven, but he doesn't call him that. And the sevenfold spirit is just a, a vague reference. Well, perhaps not so vague, but it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And then he says, from Jesus Christ. He doesn't say the slain lamb, the lion of Judah, or any of those symbolic things. He actually names Jesus. So he, he's laying the groundwork here to actually give us an example or, or to let us in on a secret that's perhaps not so secret, that Jesus Christ is vitally important in this narrative. And he goes on to, to actually start to describe Jesus. He says in uh, verse 5, He is the faithful witness to these things. And the interesting thing is these are all from the Old Testament. These are all from Psalm 89. <coughs> Excuse me. I hope this, I've finished before my voice runs out. The first to rise from the dead, again, from Psalm 89. The ruler of all the kings of the world, Psalm 89. So he's referencing Old Testament uh, knowledge, but pinpointing New Testament truth with it. The kings of the world, of course, refers to the Roman emperors because it wasn't the fact that they were emperors that was actually a problem. It was the fact that they referred to themselves as God. And they actually insisted that Roman citizens worship them as God. And so he's clearly saying here, all you Roman emperors who think you're God, you're in for a bit of a shock. And so um, he's giving us Jesus' credentials by referencing uh, the Psalm 89. And so he goes on in uh, verses 5 and 6. He says, all glory to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins. Again, this is a, a, a clever use of tense to show that Jesus has freed us from our sins. He's done the work, but he loves us meaning he's still around in the present tense. It's an encouragement to the church. We don't worship a dead and forgotten God. We worship the risen and live Jesus. Is anybody excited about that? Yes. Well, good, some of you are. Great. So, uh, he, And he shed his blood. Remember the slaughtered lamb? The shedding of, of the blood and the appearance of blood in the, in the book of Revelation is, is very important. We'll see more of that later. It says, he's made us a kingdom of priests for God his Father, a clear reference to Exodus 19 verse 6. And uh, it's basically saying that he's made a new kingdom of God's people and we are priests to those still a slave to sin. And he says, all glory and power to him forever and ever. Amen. And then verse 7 starts with, look. Didn't work. <laughs> it's, where am I? Um, Look, he comes with the clouds of heaven and everyone will see him. And again, he's referencing Old Testament um, prophets, Daniel and Zechariah. Even those who pierced him and the nations of the world will mourn for him. Yes, amen. And of course, those who pierced him are the Romans. So he, it's another reference to the Roman Empire. And if we compare that uh, slide to the one before it, we can see that he's talking about the fact that those who love Jesus are going to have a different result uh, when he comes back to those who despise Jesus and who killed him. Uh, 
so that he's already started to separate uh, what happens to believers and what happens to non-believers at the end of time. Um, and this is followed by an endorsement from Almighty God himself. Verse 8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. Now, the Almighty One is a term taken from Zechariah and only occurs outside the book of Revelation once, and that's in 2 Corinthians 6.18. So this is, this is actually a very powerful image that people don't use very often because it, 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 it depicts a, a great awe of the Almighty God who has come uh, to, as, the, as the ruler of the universe in power over everything. So this is Old Testament Imagery taken from Exodus, Psalms, Daniel and Zechariah. And we get John lifting Jesus into a place of prominence in the Trinity. He's actually putting Jesus first. And the great thing is that this is endorsed wholeheartedly by Almighty God, his Father in heaven. So he's not actually picking Jesus out and saying, look, we should worship Jesus and forget about the other guys. This is an important pact saying, you guys are going through persecution. The reason you're going through persecution in all of every and all of what God has done on this earth is because of what Jesus has done in his death and resurrection. And our motivation for continuing actually rests on what Jesus has done for us. And so then we get our first taste of the imagery of the lion and the lamb. In verse, chapter 5, verse 4, and we've, we've had this in the, uh, uh, the Bible Project video, so hopefully you'll remember some of this. It says, then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. You remember back to when they were going to open the scroll and couldn't find anybody worthy to open it. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He's worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb that looked as though it had been slaughtered. But it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and among the 24 elders. He was a normal lamb. He had seven horns, seven eyes, which represented the sevenfold spirit of God, which is sent into every part of the earth. Not any sheep I've ever seen. Um, but we can see that, of course, John is using Old Testament symbology to describe what he's hearing. But he's seeing, he's, what he's seeing is updating the Old Testament expectation of Jesus the Messiah with the New Testament reality of the risen Jesus. And so the Lion of Judah, of course, represents Israel's expectation of deliverance by God. And that's what he's hearing. But what he's seeing is the expectation uh, uh, that Jesus has already done what he's promised to do. So the Lion of Judah is an expectation. The Lamb rec represents the execution of that expectation. And by execution, I mean carried out, not head chopped off. Um, and he does that, of course, by dying for his enemies. And, in fact, by, by the enemy's hand, he dies. And uh, th this is something we struggle with as a church because uh, first century Christians in particular grew up, especially with their Jewish roots, of this whole idea that there was actually going to be a physical war and that Jesus was going to come and, and overturn the Roman rule. And instead, he goes and dies. And the first century Christians are still getting their head around the fact that they've grown up with the Old Testament, but the New Testament has suddenly exploded in their backyard, and they have to change their thinking from this, this war footing to a victory footing. Jesus has died and won the victory. It's a lot like, well, nobody told me. Sort of, this, is, this has blindsided me. 
And, and so they're, they're struggling with that. And, and, and we struggle with that today in church. I mean, we use a lot of Old Testament imagery, which is really actually incorrect. And I'm going to give you an example, which is going to stuff up your prayer life um, for a bit, because I, I don't expect us to change it. But we actually need to realise sometimes when, when we do things that, that are not what God's asking us to do. We, we often pray in meetings. We, we, we come together and, and, and we start our prayer and we say, Holy Spirit, we welcome you here this morning. We pray that you come. And we say things like that. And the Holy Spirit, who's actually already here, is wondering, who are they talking to? Where's he? Who? Oh, me. I'm here. Why are people saying, Holy Spirit, come? Fall on us afresh today. It's like Because he lives in every single one of us. Every time one of us turns up, the Holy Spirit turns up. So if I'm here saying, Holy Spirit, come, he's sort of, what? I, I, I don't remember leaving. Uh, and yet we, we do that. Because that's an Old Testament thing. We, in the Old Testament, they prayed, you know, God, pour down your rain. God, bring us your presence. Because his presence was in the temple. It wasn't in every, every one of them. And yet, you know, when we gather together, we should, and I know, you know, next time we have a prayer meeting, people are going to think, oh, can I say that? No. <laughs> Don't worry about it. I mean, it's more important that we gather together and lift up the name of Jesus. So let, we, I won't get pedantic and say, well, I, I told you about that. You shouldn't be saying that. Um, because, you know, it's just part of the fact that we, we, we read the Old and the New Testament and, and we use a, a lot of symbology. But we need to recognise sometimes that... What we're, what we're saying isn't, isn't scripturally correct necessarily. Is that, I mean, you've all heard that, uh, that scripture, when two or more are gathered, I am in your midst. Yeah. And you sort of thought, what does that actually mean? Because when one of us is gathered together, Jesus is still there. But it's actually a question, I believe, and this is not a theology, this is, this is what I believe about this, is that when one or two gather together, what it enables the Holy Spirit to do is to start to generate an atmosphere. Because when we gather together, we can meet spirit to spirit. When we pray, our spirit expresses itself. And when we do that in more than one, we actually start to build an atmosphere that encourages other people. To do it. So it's not that Jesus only turns up when there's two of us. You know, we go and pray alone and it's like, come on, Jesus, can somebody else come? I, I, it, he's there. But we, we need to adjust our thinking to recognise that we are carriers of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so... When we're saying those things, let's agree that we're just using a bit of Old Testament imagery and we actually all know that he's turned up. But they were struggling with this sort of thing because they were still using Old Testament ideas as well. And so um, you know, there was this, this whole mind-bending thing that Jesus had stepped in and suddenly won the war without telling anyone. Um, and they're, they're all more than conquerors. You know, it's, it's hard when we expect to fight a battle and suddenly we're told, oh, sorry, it's done, you've won. You're the victors, and we're sort of standing around thinking, what did I do? Nothing. Jesus did it. So he's wanting to get a picture here of the fact that although we think of Jesus as a lion and fighting and everything else, he's done it. He's won the victory. He's bled and died for us. His blood has actually saved us. And we see this as we continue in Revelation verse chapter 7. And we talked about this last week, verse 9. Verse 4 says, I heard how many were marked with the seal of God, 144,000, and they list the name of the tribes. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe, people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. And uh, it goes on in, in Revelation 14, where it talks about uh, the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him were the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound 
from heaven like the roar of mighty ocean waves or the rolling of loud thunder. It was like the sound of many harpists playing together. This great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God and before the four living beings and the 24 elders. Nobody could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. They'd kept themselves as pure as virgin, virgins following the lamb wherever he goes. They have been purchased from among the people on the earth as a special offering to God and the lamb. And they've told no lies. They are without blame. Following the lamb wherever he goes. Is that not the call of God's church? Is that not our call? Now, for those of you who might be thinking that the 144,000 are real people, remember the description. The purity and the blamelessness attributed to those people in reality has only been attributed to one person in the whole of history. Who is that person? Jesus. So these are not real people, but it is the real church because what happens when we get saved, when we accept the lordship of Jesus Christ in our lives, how does God see us? As pure, blameless and without lie. And so that is a picture, the 144, a picture of perfection or completion. That is a picture of the church following Jesus Christ. Then, how are we going for time? I'm f- am I five minutes over time already? Holy cow. Quick, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. John sees Jesus in a different form. He says, then I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. Interesting. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God the Almighty like juice flowing from a winepress. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. So we know this person's Jesus. Is that fairly clear? I mean, there's enough symbology there that says Messiah, Jesus, slain lamb, saviour of the world. It doesn't have to be explained too much. There are so many flashing lights that we'd be blind not to see it. But the interesting thing here is he's riding into battle with the armies of heaven behind him in a robe covered in blood. I mean, who does that? Unless you've already, already won. Because the blood, of course, that his robe is dipped in is his. Here's another picture of a war that's been won before it even starts. Even though Jesus is followed by the armies of heaven. Who are the armies of heaven? People who are more than conquerors. That's us. So, and again, it's, it's a bit like you know, we're here on false pretenses. You know, Jesus leads us out, aren't we? We're ready to fight. Yeah, we're with you, Jesus. We're for you. We're going. And Jesus says, oh, don't worry about it. I've won. You still think, oh, what am I doing here then? And that's the question we need to answer. What are we doing here? And I want to show you, because... I mean, it's not an unfair question. If Jesus has won the war and he's going to hold his enemies accountable, why do we have to suffer persecution? Why do we have to be continually faithful to Jesus? Because of the Great Commission you know, he gave us in Matthew 28. Okay? If he's already won, why do we do that? And I actually want to show you. I want to show you in a short movie clip 
that I've put together for you from a movie that I love, but as seems with a lot of these movies that nobody else has ever seen. Um, it's a movie called Charlie Wilson's War. Has anybody ever seen that movie? There's a few people. Oh, good. Uh, it's actually a, a true story of a US congressman called Charlie Wilson, who from 1987 to 1989 persuaded Congress to secretly supply Afghan rebels with high-tech modern weaponry to help them fight the Russians who'd invaded Afghanistan in 1979. Military aid to the tune of $1 billion was secretly, and I say secretly, poured into Afghanistan, which re resulted in the Russians' withdrawal and defeat from Afghanistan in 1989. And the, the bit of, of I'm going to show you actually has scenes from the uh, Senate Appropriations Committee where they decided on how much, how much funding they were actually going to give to the war effort um, and, how, and what that resulted in and uh, what the, uh, the feeling was in the same committee uh, after they felt the war had been won. So can we have a look at that? Might have to turn the sound up. estimates that seven out of every ten times the Muj fires a stinger a Soviet chopper or a plane falls out of the sky. Now, Russian MiGs go for $20 million. Stingers go for 60000 $70,000. What do you want to do? Well, I'd like to double the $250 million. Remind me again. Where did this thing start? $5 million. <laughs> there was wild jubilation inside the country of Afghanistan as last weekend it became the first country in history to defeat the mighty Soviet Union. The retreat of Soviet military power from Afghanistan is complete. The last of Russia's regular army invasion force is out. Fear and uncertainty were mixed with joy today as the commander of Soviet troops followed the last of his men across the border. CBS News Moscow correspondent Barry Peterson begins our coverage. It was the last hurrah, the final Soviet combat troops crossing the Friendship Bridge on the border between Afghanistan and the Soviet Union. That's a television show, right? Look what you did, Charlie. $1 million for school reconstruction? <laughs> did you hear me say it was a million, not a billion, for school construction? Yeah, we heard you. Everybody heard you, buddy. They heard you in Dover, Delaware. Well, I sure hope I'm not annoying you, Bob, because that's the last thing I want to do. Look, I was in the Roosevelt Room with the president last week. You know what he said? He said Afghanistan. Is that still going on? Well, it is. Half the population of that country is Charlie. under the age of 14. Half the population is under the age of 14. Now, think how dangerous that is. They're going to come home and find their families are dead. Their villages have been napalmed. And we helped kill the guys who did it. Yeah, but they don't know that, Bob, because they don't get home delivery of the New York Times. But even if they did, it was covert, remember? This, this is what we always do. We always go in with our ideals and we change the world. And then we leave. We always leave. But that ball, though, it keeps on bouncing. What? The ball keeps on bouncing. Yeah, we're a little busy right now reorganizing Eastern Europe, don't you think? We've spent billions. Let's spend a million on HR 118 and rebuild the school. Charlie, nobody gives a about a school in Pakistan. Afghanistan. I had to edit that a bit because it was fairly strong. Even the last bit there, Charlie Wilson did not say we stuffed up the end game. He said something a lot stronger than that. Um, but ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we are in 
the end game. The key point on that clip was that while he had no trouble raising millions of dollars to fight the war, when the battle was over, he couldn't persuade them to spend even one million dollars to rebuild a school in Kabul. They had won the battle, but they ended up losing the war because they didn't know how to walk in victory. In the movie, most Afghans were unaware of their benefactors and partly due to US reluctance to provide humanitarian aid, an anti-Western movement developed, resulting eventually in the Taliban oppression of Afghanistan. The war had been won. These things happened, as it says. They were glorious and they changed the world. Now the thing is that Jesus has won the battle for us. But he sent his church in to play the end game. How do we walk in victory? We love our enemies. We heal the sick. We perform miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. We bear witness to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we are kings and priests to those who do not yet know him. The most important thing we are called to do is to tell people that Jesus died and won a victory for them. Because like in the movie clip, most of the world does not know. And so the, the persecution and the trials and the tribulation we are facing is because our task, our mission, should we choose to accept it, is to actually let the world know that they can live in victory, that Jesus has died for them, that, that there is no more battle to be fought our job is to actually walk in the victory that Jesus Christ obtained for us by his death and resurrection on the cross. We are in the end game. We are in the end times. But we are not called to fight the battle of Armageddon. And we'll discover that next week. I'm sorry I had to sort of skip ahead a bit with some of this and let you in on stuff that you perhaps don't know about. So a few spoilers. But Jesus has come out and by his blood shown us that he's already won the victory. Our job, our purpose in sticking with Jesus, in being a faith-filled people despite persecution, despite death, is to actually let the world know that they don't have to do this anymore. That if they accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour, that we can walk in victory, but people need to know. We need to be walking in that victory consistently. Matthew 28, 19, the Great Commission. Therefore, because of what Jesus has done, that's what it's there for. Jesus has won the victory. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth, end of the age. Don't stuff up the end game. Can we all stand? It's good to know the mechanics of what we're supposed to do, isn't it? It's good to know what Jesus has told us to do. But the thing that keeps us motivated, the thing that keeps us full of faith is actually the knowledge that Jesus has won the victory. That we're not doing this alone. This isn't a vain, hopeless battle that we fight. It isn't some sort of stressful 
lifestyle that we're supposed to enter into on our own strength. We're actually walking in victory. We are blessed and encouraged and victorious because of what Jesus has done. And that's why we undergo persecution. It's not because we're masochists. It's because there is a hope and a knowledge that Jesus has died for us. Let me pray for you. Lord, I thank you that as we stand here in faith, we stand in the knowledge that our victory has been won and that we come as more than conquerors to actually walk in that victory, to proclaim the year of God's favour, to proclaim the victory that Jesus has won for us and to walk in that victory, to proclaim to the world that Jesus is their Lord and Saviour as well, that they can be, as we are, more than overcomers. In Jesus' name. Amen. Just keep standing for a moment with your heads bowed. If you're here this morning and you have never actually taken that step of inviting Jesus Christ into your life to be your Lord and your Saviour, that is the first step to walking in victory with a victorious life. It's not the end step. It's the first step. But if you're here this morning, you've never done that, or you're here this morning and you've responded to that invitation before but you know that you've not taken it up fully that you're actually not walking a victorious life with Jesus as your Lord and Saviour I would like to pray that prayer with you again because Jesus is always willing to accept people who, are, who will repent turn their life around and come back to him so if you're here this morning you've never accepted an invitation to have Jesus come into your heart or you know that you need to respond to that invitation again while every eye is closed and every head bowed I invite you just to raise your hand high so that I can see it and I'd love to pray a prayer with you inviting Jesus into your heart is there anyone this morning who wants to pray that prayer okay can I ask you to look raise your eyes look forward I, I, because of that knowledge, I, I mean, and I'm excited about it. I, I don't know whether you are or not, but I, I'm excited about th this revelation that, that we, we're not walking alone in a hopeless cause. We're walking with Jesus in, in, in victory. And so I think it's a, it's a great time to actually reinforce that. I want, us to pray, I want us to pray a prayer of salvation together to actually just reinforce who we are. So can you repeat after me? Dear Lord Jesus, my life is yours. You are my Lord and my Saviour. I am walking now in victory because of what you have done in my life. Lord, I am yours. Use me, take my life, and do with it what you will. Amen. Hopefully you meant that. Thank you. Sometimes we just need a little bit of a, a shake-up, don't we, just to re remind ourselves of what we're actually doing. You know, it's very easy to go about your daily life and not include the fact that the Holy Spirit is with us every step of the way, every moment of the day. And if we're listening to him, there are so many opportunities for us to speak to people in various ways. Thank you, God. <laughs>